But even at those times when I thought I had come close to hating her, I knew that there was no escaping the bond we had. I talked to her about memories last night. I don't know whether she heard me or not. But there's another memory that I didn't bring up because it hurt her once. A memory that has punctuated most of my life and that I have never understood. It surfaces now, unbidden, and I see a green postbox and a small hand stretching upwards to push an envelope into its oblong mouth. The edges of the image are blurred. It's as if someone has opened an old tarnished locket to reveal a silent film playing in slow motion inside. It's always the same. It plays over and over, the little hand never in any position but extending upwards, the envelope always held in those childish fingers, the mouth of the green postbox almost within reach. And then, as strangely as it has appeared, the grainy image fades, leaving me puzzled and slightly disturbed, even a little afraid. I am never sure whether that small hand is mine. But if not mine, whose? My mother's coffin stands in front of the altar. It felt strange to leave her there through the night, alone in the locked church. The last time she was here was for Dermot's funeral. She wasn't religious. You don't need religion to be a good person, she used to say. She didn't leave any instructions for her own funeral, and probably wouldn't have been too bothered if we had told her we were going to put her body into a cardboard box and tip it from a boat into the sea. The funeral is for me, because I need something beautiful and soft and hopeful to take away the memory of that terrible last night in the hospital. So the choir sings Foray's Requiem. Because with no dies ere, no day of judgment, it's the sweetest, gentlest requiem of all. And as we all shuffle to the altar for communion, the choir sings Jura Fleu Ubi Caritas e Amor. We leave the church for the graveyard. It's cold and wet, a typical November day in Ireland. But when the undertaker indicates one of the funeral cars, I shake my head. I want to walk behind my mother on her final journey. Ursula, my friend, since childhood, walks beside me. A couple of relatives have turned up. My mother's older brother and his middle-aged son. We haven't spoken yet. They weren't part of my life when I was growing up, though I had known of their existence. Now I have only the mildest curiosity about them. It's the Keevneys. Dermot's people I think of as my family, even though I'm not related to them, and they're out in force. Angela and her husband Joe, and their daughters and grandchildren. I've kept my eyes on the coffin all through the prayers at the graveside, but when it's finally lowered, I can barely see anything because rain and tears are blurring my sight. Ronan, Angela's grandson, tugs at my sleeve, and puts his little hand into mine. Don't cry, Auntie Lou, he says, 
his big eyes looking up at me, from a face filled with a kindness you don't expect from a five-year-old boy. This makes me cry even more, and his mother Lizzie squeezes my shoulder and tries to move Ronan away, but he keeps his grip of my hand and refuses to let it go. He's fine, I tell Lizzie. After the burial, there's a reception at one of the local hotels, and with the worst of the funeral over and having downed a large glass of wine, I begin to emerge from the fog that has enveloped me over the past few days. The fog that has softened the longing to call Sandy. Now, my mind clear but filled with pain and loss, I am desperate to hear his voice. I slip outside to a courtyard and dial his number. Louise? The lack of expression in his voice hurts me, almost as much as the loss of my mother does. The end of a marriage is another kind of bereavement.